Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. When painting met photography, a fight broke out. And in the aftermath, well, painting had to figure out what to do with itself next. In this episode, we'll be talking about painting, photography, and some reasons why people may feel a little intimidated by modern and contemporary art. And also, why you don't need to be. Whenever I introduce students to modern and contemporary art, I get one of two reactions. Either people absolutely love it, or they give it the blankest stare you ever saw and wonder what the blazes they're looking at and what in the world makes me think that that is art. Well, the reason lies in the origin of photography and what happened when painting and photography collided. And boy, did they ever collide. For millennia, painting was the only way to permanently transfer the image of three-dimensional space onto a flat surface. In the ancient Mediterranean world, the most valuable artists were those who could paint or sculpt something so naturalistically that you were fooled into thinking it was real. And then, sometime in the Middle Ages, someone got the bright idea of using mirrors to help get that naturalism really perfect. Really good mirrors and various arrangements of glass in a nice little box made it possible to trace the outlines of a landscape without making any mistakes, or a person, or whatever else you wanted to reflect in the mirror. They called this contraption the camera obscura, which basically means dark room. Uh, Yeah, you wonder where the photography dark room came from? Ta-da! Well, it's easiest to do any of this kind of work if you're trying to trace something on a light board, which is fundamentally what this was, um, when the only light is the light that reflects off the mirror. Anyway, uh, whether you're working in a camera obscura or just on a light board, it still means that the artist has to do the drawing, so there are always some details that might get missed, inaccuracies, mistakes, checking, double-checking, and if you just want an accurate rendering of what you see, uh, that gets irritating and it takes forever. In about the 18th century, people started experimenting with chemicals and ways that used light and shadow to burn an image onto a flat surface. At the beginning of the 19th century, in 1827, a man named Joseph Nicephore Nieps succeeded. He was French. After that, Louis Daguerre, who was also French, and William Henry Fox Talbot, who was English, both came up with refinements to the process. Daguerre went into partnership with Niepce and came up with the daguerreotype. Uh, the daguerreotype was made pretty public by the French government, um, so anyone could use it. That's actually one reason why the daguerreotype became so popular. William Henry Fox Talbot came up with the calotype, and it wasn't nearly as pretty at first, but it was a lot like printmaking. You could make multiple copies of the same image. You couldn't do that with the daguerreotype. Lots of technical stuff happened during the 19th century uh, with lawsuits and copyright processes and albumin prints and collodion prints and, oh my word, all of this other stuff that hurts my brain. But the upshot of all of this experimentation was that photography could produce images of landscapes and of people and of anything else willing to stand still for a couple of hours and then an hour and then half an hour with a whole lot more accuracy than painting usually did. And photography could do it faster and cheaper, too. That meant that a whole lot of painters are suddenly out of a job. Technology had made them obsolete. 
This was absolutely and completely not cool. And painters started going in search of what painting can do that photography can't. They were helped by traditionalists who didn't particularly care for the lack of artistic skill required to operate a camera and a darkroom. It was far too easy to be considered an actual art form. So, painted portraits and landscapes continued to be the gold standard. And that analogy, <laughs> gold standard, is almost scarily appropriate considering the gold standard in economics. Never mind. Anyway, if you had money, you got someone to paint for you. If you didn't have money, or if you were interested in the new and in the original, you got a daguerreotype, or if you were cheap, a tintype, instead. Now, my dad has a whole shoebox full of tintype photographs of our ancestors, mostly because we love that sort of thing and people know it, so they send us stuff. If you look at my Twitter page, you'll see a photo of men in fin de siècle drag, early 20th century theater geeks doing their thing. It's fantastic, and I love it, and one of them is my great-grandfather. You couldn't really get away with doing something like that in painting, not in Dulles, Oregon, in the early 20th century anyway. Uh, the Clark boys and their friends might have been from some of the wealthier families in the area, but they weren't that rich. Okay, now, back to what painting can do that photography can't. Well, photography required people to sit very still but it was really good at being accurate. Photography, as a result, takes over the role of scientific documentation. And there are plenty of people who thought that that's where photography should stay, dagnabbit. Not that photographers were willing to be relegated to being the Igors of the artistic world. They were artists, thank you very much, as well as being chemists, and they set out to prove it. They took photographs of landscapes that gave the best romantic landscapes a run for their money, they took portraits that were absolutely gorgeous, and, well, okay, fine, photography can come play with portraiture and landscapes. See if I care. Harumph. Sniffle. Painting was still better if you wanted something really big, or if you wanted to show people doing things in ordinary daily life, people who don't stand still, or if you wanted to paint allegories or mythological subjects. Mythological subjects were the provenance of the Academy, and lots of painters of the Academy loved painting nude Venuses and Mars and all of those other fabulous people. French painters outside the Academy, painters like Gustave Courbet and Honoré Daumier, they painted things like monumental-sized funerals of ordinary village folk, and the reality of traveling in a third-class railway carriage. They called their new style of painting realism because it captured real life in a way that photography couldn't, and most painters, like the ones in the Academy, didn't. In case you're curious, that's why we usually say that an artwork is naturalistic instead of realistic. Even though realistic is a word that comes to mind a whole lot faster and rolls off the tongue easier, Realism is an actual artistic movement of the 19th century, so calling something realistic means that it's like the stuff Courbet and Daumier did, and that's not usually the case at all. Now, the other thing photography couldn't do was color, at least not yet. So impressionists started playing around with color. The way that light reflects off of various surfaces, the way color works, along with these ideas of daily life and the things that don't usually get 
commemorated in monumental art. These are the things that Impressionists really enjoyed. So they often carted their canvases around with them to various locations. This is a technique called, appropriately, plain air painting. Now, plain air painting, which is basically going and carting around your paintbrush and your canvas and then setting it up in whatever location and painting what you see there, this takes advantage of another new technology, the tube of paint, which was a godsend to the weekend painter. Now, the tube of paint was actually the invention of a guy who liked painting, but always had to deal with having his paint dry up before he had time to sit down and paint anything. Not to mention that he was probably a klutz who couldn't make the usual ways of transporting paint work. If he was anything like me, he probably just got sick of getting paint all over yet another shirt. But anyway, he came up with the idea of storing paint in airtight, bendy metal tubes that would roll up from the bottom and squeeze out nice, fresh paint whenever he wanted it. That way, he could mix paint one weekend, paint the next, and not have to worry about dried out paint. If you like your tubes of paint, or tubes of toothpaste, or makeup, or epoxy, or anything gooey that you squeeze out of a tube, you can thank John Goffrand and his hobby of painting on the weekends. Uh, so after the Impressionists and the Realists, painters started experimenting with everything else about painting. And here's where we start getting into all of the isms of modern and contemporary art. How does color actually work, and what makes paint and color express emotion? Post-Impressionism. What makes a line a line? When does it become a three-dimensional form? How can two-dimensional space reflect three-dimensional objects? Cubism. What is the most basic point of art? How basic can you make representation before it shatters completely into fragments of line and shape? Hi, suprematism! And so on. Then there were all the other things that painting can do that photography can't. Photography can't capture things that aren't physically visible. Well, okay, so there are some cameras and some films that claim with varying amounts of accuracy to be able to render the invisible visible by reacting to light waves that the human eye can't see. Some of that I'll go with, some of it, well, I will reserve judgment on. <clears throat> Either way. Photography is limited to light waves and what can be reflected off of film. Painting isn't. You can paint anything you can imagine if you have the time, the talent, and the materials. So there have been people experimenting with what music and sound might look like, with how to best express emotion, whether there is a universal mode of expression that can communicate to anyone regardless of culture, gender, or education. And that brings us to how to look at modern and contemporary art, which we think is so very different from photography. I have often heard people say, I don't know how to look at art, or I don't know anything about art. And then I push them a little, and all of a sudden they remember that, oh, they really like Claude Monet's Water Lilies, or pretty Raphael Madonna's, they recognize those, or something. But because they don't know the history and the background and can't talk about composition and balance and harmony, they think they don't understand it. Baloney. Y'all understand it just fine. For the vast majority of the history of people on this planet, art was the fundamental way of communicating between one person 
and another person who were not in the same place at the same time. As a result, the goal of art has always been to be understood immediately by anybody who sees it. Sure, sometimes there are Easter eggs, wink-wink, nudge-nudge jokes, or ideas for people in the know, but there is always something that is meant to grab even the most ignorant person. The same goes for a lot of modern and contemporary art. Sure, sometimes people are going for self-expression, but think about it. Why do you make something? Why would anyone make something and then put it on display for the whole world to see? Why paint huge swaths of canvas or build great big sculptures out of scrap metal and then open it up to the world? Because on some level, somewhere, you want someone to understand what you are trying to say. I have never met an artist who doesn't want to be understood. Even if they only want to be understood by a small elite group of people, they really want the approval of that small elite group. So don't be afraid of art. Don't be afraid to look at it and to have an opinion about it. Like it, hate it, be indifferent to it, whatever, react. Your reaction is part of the experience and part of what makes art, art. Ironically, people tend to think that photography is easier or better because it is like a mirror. It only reflects what it sees. Ta! Uh, uh, <coughs> gotcha. Photography is just as big a lie as painting, and maybe even more so, because painting doesn't pretend that the artist doesn't exist. There are two parts to the great lie of photography. The first lie is that what you are seeing in the photograph is how something actually looks. The truth? A good photographer is going to manipulate what gets shown and what doesn't, often using exactly the same techniques as a good painter. Think about film and movies. Speaking of which, my pet peeve is when film studies end up being put into literature departments. Oh my word! Films and movies are visual media. They're photography, a whole bunch of photographs strung together and then shown in sequence. Um, and those photographs are very carefully orchestrated with CGI and special effects. They're even more strongly founded in the visual arts. <clears throat> They're meant to be seen, as thoughtfully posed as any painting, and many of them are deliberately spectacular in the sense of for spectacle, being strongly for visual purposes. As a result, thank you very much, they belong in art history. <clears throat> Back to the first lie. The first lie is the lie that what you are seeing is exactly what was really there. That's not always the case. After all, a good digital artist can make you think that there really are dragons sleeping underneath London, or velociraptors hiding out on some tropical island, or aliens duking it out with the Air Force over Nevada, or make you believe that a model has flawless skin and no stretch marks or tattoos, or has been working out at the gym for six hours every day and drinks nothing but kale juice. The second lie is the lie that what you are seeing reflects the reality of a situation. Propaganda photographers are really good at this. They'll take pictures of one specific moment or one particular place, and sure, it will be documentary in that it is a precise and accurate depiction of exactly what was there. But what they show you may or may not reflect the reality of the whole experience. This happens a lot in depictions of war. 
photographs are carefully chosen to show people back home the danger, the heroism, the bravery of the folks who are fighting the good fight. But they do not show the downside, not often. They do not show the images of the experiences that give veteran soldiers PTSD, the pictures that show up in nightmares of people who've lived it. Those photos and videos aren't going to win the war any points, and so those things don't get shown. You see this a lot in World War II photography. There's a big difference between what showed up in the newspapers and what showed up in, say, medical records. So really, in the end, painting and photography are just two different ways of representing and reflecting the human experience of the world. They're kind of like siblings. And eventually they started playing nice together, and now you just use whichever technique works best for what you're trying to accomplish. Speaking of which, even if you give a paintbrush to a gorilla or a camera to your cat, you're still asking those creatures to make art using human language. Visual language is still language. I'd complain, but uh, if it helps us to understand each other better or to accept that we're all connected to each other, just like painting and photography, I'll cope. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening. <laughs>